Five weeks ago, in this very room, we heard an excerpt from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first book in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. The excerpt started with a question from one of the Pevensey children, asking who Aslan is. In the story, Aslan is a lion who takes back Narnia from the power of the White Witch. One of the children, Susan, taken aback by the information that Aslan is a lion, says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. Not safe, but good. Our scripture readings today remind us that God, too, is good, but not necessarily safe. In our first lesson from Genesis 32, we hear about Jacob wrestling with God. In verse 24, Jacob is alone on a riverbank, facing an uncertain future. His family and servants had already forded the Jabbok River, a tributary of the Jordan, ahead of him, and he remained behind. And when we meet him there on the banks of the Jabbok in Genesis 32, Jacob and his family are on their way to meet his brother Esau in the land of Edom. That's the same Esau that Jacob had cheated out of his inheritance by telling their blind father Isaac that he, Jacob, was Esau, the older brother. And Esau was understandably incensed by Jacob's swindling and in his anger, Esau had threatened to kill Jacob. So why was Jacob on his way to see Esau down south in Edom, the brother who, when last heard from, was plotting to kill him? It's because Jacob had enemies on every side. He was trying to get away from his wily uncle Laban, who even to a man of Jacob's high standards had proved to be stiff competition in the dishonesty scale. Jacob had incurred Laban's displeasure by implementing, implementing a system of selective livestock breeding in his, that is, Jacob's favor. 
not to be done, not to be outdone by his swindling nephew from the south, Laban then tricked Jacob into working twice as long as agreed before Jacob was able to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel. <coughs> and so as we meet Jacob in today's reading, Jacob is on his way from one bad family situation in the north with Laban to what was potentially another one in the south with Esau. And then on the way, at this ford of the river, Jacob encounters an unnamed man and wrestles with him. Fourteen chapters earlier in Genesis 18, God is visiting Jacob's grandparents, Sarah and Abraham, also in the form of a mysterious man, or in that case, a group of men. It's hard to tell. Is this a man? Is this God? Or is this both? Now, Jacob manifests himself. God manifests himself to Jacob in a similar way as he did to Abraham and to Sarah when Jacob was between a rock and a hard place, between Laban and Esau. In his moment of aloneness and vulnerability, Jacob was engaged by God in physical struggle and Jacob contended or strove with God. And that is often when we contend with God too. When we're in a place of vulnerability, of difficulty and doubt. When we're in a difficult situation and the world offers little hope of deliverance. Like a father wrestling with his son, God wrestled with Jacob. God restrained himself to Jacob's level and gave Jacob confidence to face the future. By dislocating Jacob's hip, God gave Jacob a physical reminder that if Jacob could contend with God and not give up, Perhaps Jacob could face his uncertain future with God after all. God gave Jacob a verbal reminder also in the form of a new name, the name of Israel, by which Jacob's descendants would be known and by which they would be reminded that engaging with God is not so much a stroll in the park as it is an ongoing struggle with a God who is not safe but good. And that reminder is for us too. When we struggle with God, we can remember that faith has not only recently become a struggle, but it's been a struggle, a striving for a long time. At the same time, we can remember that when we struggle with God, God is near us. He does not abandon us when we contend with him, but engages us at close quarters. 
like Jacob and the Apostle Paul, we often encounter God in the dark, as it were through a glass, partially obscured in our view. And while our obscured vision, our partial understanding, may be frustrating for us, we can take a lesson from Jacob and be thankful for seeing God without being destroyed. For God's glory is overwhelming and more than we can bear, as Moses and the Israelites witnessed at Mount Sinai. Instead of destroying Jacob, God's encounter with him strengthened Jacob. And our struggles with God can do the same for us as well. That doesn't mean they will be pleasant or effortless, but God can strengthen us through them. Our strivings remind us that as God's people, we will struggle with God to make sense of God's ways in the light of what we see going on in the world. When, we, when this happens, we need not fear. We are in good company, the company of other sinners to whom God was close, with whom God contended, people like Jacob and Moses and Paul. God's message to us is this, do not be afraid to engage me with your toughest questions, your most skeptical doubts, your most despairing grief. God will not crumble in the face of them. We can bring them to the Lord in prayer. He will not take offense or abandon us. He sticks with us and does not destroy us. So keep wrestling with God. He isn't safe, but he is good. Keep the lines of communication open, even when they sometimes seem only to be one way. Keep contending with God as an act of faith, trusting that he is able to handle our doubts, our fears, our outrage, our cries for help. As Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 18, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Of course, we need to be careful what we wish for. Without Jesus to take our sin and guilt, and to give us his own righteousness in exchange, God's justice would leave none of us standing. Struggling with God is not just a matter of yelling at him for justice whenever we feel aggrieved. No, it means learning the ways of God and submitting ourselves to what God prescribes. As Paul points out to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that means steeping ourselves in Scripture, in God's Word, so that we may become wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That is, that we might so understand the significance of our salvation 
that its meaning would permeate our way of life and that we would grow in maturity and in conformity to the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. To strive with God, then, is not a bad thing. It describes the life of faith. And as Jesus does with five loaves and two fish in our gospel lesson, God provides abundantly what we need to live and to grow, material and spiritual. He isn't safe, but he is good. Genuine struggle with God involves training in Scripture and submitting ourselves to God's will revealed there. It means a regular diet of word and sacrament. It means allowing God's gift of salvation to transform how we live. It means letting God put our wills out of joint so that His may be accomplished. With that reminder that we are engaged with God, we, like Jacob, can face our future, our uncertain future, in hope and confidence, no matter how dark the night or how deserted the shore.